Good to see you uh, this morning. My name is Matt Carter. I'm the pastor of Preaching and Vision here at the Austin Stone. Um, I want to invite you uh, to open up your Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 12, verse 23 today. Matthew chapter 12, verse 23. We're continuing through the text together, the gospel of Matthew. And, and today in Matthew's gospel, we're going to come to one of the most difficult things that Jesus ever says in his whole ministry. And it's where he talks about how there's one sin that you can commit that is actually unforgivable. And it's the sin that Jesus called blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And it's actually a really difficult topic for us to get our minds around. Because throughout the entire Bible, it doesn't matter how serious or how heinous the sin, we see God offer forgiveness. Whether it's idolatry, murder, gluttony, fornication, adultery, Deceit, theft, covenant breaking, drunkenness, self-righteousness, pride, you go on and on and on. You see God forgive it. You even see God forgiving the most heinous sin imaginable, which is the murder of his son. When Jesus hung on the cross and he was being killed by the hands of the Romans, what did he say? He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So there is no sin. No matter how great, no matter how small, that God will not graciously forgive except one. We're going to get our minds around that today with the hope that we can avoid it. So the scripture begins with Jesus performing a pretty significant miracle. And that's key. And what Jesus is going to show us is that the Pharisees' response to that miracle is going to be a picture of what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit actually looks like. So let's look at the text together. Matthew chapter 12, let's look at actually verse 22. It says, Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that he spoke and he saw. So this demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that he spoke And he saw. Now, this verse is critical for us understanding what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. Because up to this point, and hear this, up to this point, Jesus has healed people that were demon-possessed. He's healed people that were blind. He's healed people that were deaf. But here, in a really public fashion, Jesus heals a guy that had all three afflictions at the exact same time. Now, that's significant because anybody that would approach this guy would have thought this guy's too far gone to be helped. People would have looked at this man that needed healing and say, not only can he not see, but he can't hear. And on top of that, this guy's out of his mind because he's demon-possessed. And yet Jesus walks up to this guy right in front of the entire crowd and right in front of the Pharisees, and he miraculously heals him of all three of his afflictions. Now, here's why that matters. because this is one of the most definitive displays of Jesus' power and his divinity in his entire ministry, and Jesus did it intentionally right in front of the Pharisees' faces. Now, I want you to watch what the everyday response uh, of the people that were there. There was a crowd of people there with the Pharisees. I want you to watch their response. In Matthew 12, 23, it says, And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? So Matthew tells us that when the crowd of people saw Jesus perform this miracle, they were amazed. Now that's a really strong word in the original language. It's a word that means totally astounded or utterly beside oneself with amazement. 
<clears throat> so when the everyday people in the crowd saw Jesus perform this unbelievable miracle, they weren't like, oh, that's cool, and go on with their lives. But their response was more like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> that's the most unbelievable thing I've ever seen in my entire life. But <clears throat> watch what they do and watch what they say after they saw the miracle and were amazed. Verse 23, it says, and all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? Now the title, son of David, was a title that was used for the coming Messiah. And so at first glance, it looks like the crowd had a really positive response to Jesus' miracle. It looks like people saw the miracle and were like, hey, could this, could this be the Messiah? Maybe this is the son of David. But that was not the heart behind their question. When you look at the original language, what happened was when, when the people saw the miracle and they were totally and utterly amazed, they look at Jesus and the question that they asked was more like, this can't be the son of David, can it? They saw the miracle, they were floored by it, but their response was, no, no way. This guy can be the Messiah. So hear this, even though they saw and they encountered the power and the divinity of Jesus with their own eyes, it did not produce in them belief. The people responded in unbelief. Now, I've actually seen that sort of thing happen a lot over the years. When I was a youth pastor back in the day, we'd always take a, a big group of kids to summer camp or summer retreat or something, and and we would always encourage our students to bring non-believers to camp with us. I even did a promotion one time in my, uh, in my youth group. And I told the kids if they got like 200 kids to sign up and go to this camp that I would, um, that I would frost the tips of my hair. This was, like back in, <clears throat> this was like back in 98 when that was a thing. And, and those little suckers did it. We got 200 kids to go to summer camp. And this was back in the day. I, I had a goatee. I don't know what I was thinking. I had a goatee. And um, it, which was red. I have a red beard. It's really weird. I have brown hair, but the tips were frosted blonde. I look like a chubby Backstreet Boy. It was really, really bad. Um, but here's what would happen. We'd bring these non-believing students to camp. The music and the preacher would be amazing. We'd have these altar calls. And time after time, I saw this over the years, that these non-believing kids would have this sort of experience with God. They'd, they'd sing. They'd get emotional. They'd cry, they'd come down to the front, they'd pray. Now here's the thing, many times it was legit. I saw tons of students over the years encounter God in those environments, experience Him, and then receive in Him and trust in Him and believe in Him and become believers and completely change their life, but far too many times. <clears throat> We'd go home, and within a few days of us getting back, the majority of those kids that cried and had those amazing experiences with Jesus and said they wanted to get right with Jesus would either disappear and, or would just go back to their lives the way it was before they went to the retreat. So hear this. It's entirely possible for you to encounter and experience the presence and the power of God and even be in genuine amazement of Him but that not produce real life changing belief and faith in Christ. Now, what I just articulated is not blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, okay? That is, listen, that's just good old fashioned unbelief. Those people that saw and experienced God, they just simply didn't believe Jesus was who he says he was. Now, here's the thing. 
Unbelief is completely forgivable. You know, every single one of us at some point before um, Jesus stepped into our story and the Holy Spirit changed us and we responded in faith, every single one of us were in a state of unbelief. And so if a person just simply doesn't believe, but eventually repents of their sin and trust in Christ, they will be forgiven. <clears throat> now, here's the thing, though. Blasphemy is much darker than that. I'm going to define blasphemy for you, and I want you to hear this. <clears throat> blasphemy is defined as a conscious denouncing or a willful rejection of God. <clears throat> and so blasphemy is when you actually do believe in God but then you consciously and willfully reject him and refuse to follow him. <clears throat> James talks about this um, and how the demons do this in James chapter two, verse 19. James says, you believe that God is one. He says, you believe that God is one and you do well. Then he says, even the demons believe. Okay, you see that? That's a picture of blasphemy. The demons actually believe that Jesus is everything that he said he is. But do they follow him? No. They willfully reject him. Okay, so unbelief, simple unbelief, is you don't believe God is who he says he is, so you don't respond. Blasphemy is you do believe God is everything he said he is, and you do respond by willfully and consciously rejecting. And so the crowd sees Jesus perform the miracle, they see, the, see him heal this guy, remove the guy's demon, and they simply don't believe he's the Messiah, so they walk away. But I want you to watch how the Pharisees respond because the Pharisees' response is different. And through the Pharisees' response, we're gonna start seeing a picture of what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit looks like. So Matthew chapter 12, verse 24 says, but when the Pharisees heard it, in other words, when the Pharisees saw the miracle, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, that's Satan, it's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Okay, so here's the thing. I don't miss this. The Pharisees saw Jesus perform this miraculous healing right in front of their face. <clears throat> and here's the thing, guys. They don't deny it. They don't deny it. They just confessed with their own mouths that he did it. They just profess with their own mouths that he performed the miraculous. They believed it, but because they hated Jesus so much and because they couldn't stand the idea of people following him instead of following them, they said, well, yeah, you cast out a demon, but it was by the power of Satan that you did it. Now, through that response, again, we're starting to see a picture of what blasphemy of the Spirit looks like. These guys, these Pharisees, saw with their own eyes and they actually believed that Jesus was performing a supernatural miracle, listen, that they theologically knew that only God could do. The Pharisees knew that. They knew that only God could cast out demons, but they consciously and willfully rejected and denounced him. <clears throat> okay. So the next thing Jesus does is he completely dismantles their argument. He dismantles their argument that, that he cast out a demon by the power of Satan, and he, and he does it by showing them three things. Number one, he shows them their response was absurd. Number two, he shows them their response was biased. And number three, he ultimately shows them that the response 
was blasphemous. Now, really quickly, let's look at how Jesus shows them that their response was absurd. In Matthew 12, 25, so they've looked at him and they've said, hey, we see that you cast out a demon, but you did it by the power of Satan. Watch what he says. He says, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And so he shows them that their response is absurd by pointing out a famous verse that that every kingdom that's divided against itself can't stand. Jesus' point is that there is no way, there's no way that he could that, that he could cast out a demon by the power of Satan because Satan would never do that. He looks at the Pharisees and he says, guys, he basically says, guys, that's a dumb argument that Satan gave me the power to cast out a demon because there's no way that Satan's gonna hurt his own cause by casting out one of his own demons. And so he shows them that their argument is absurd. The second thing is he shows them their argument was biased. In Matthew chapter 12, 27, Jesus continues and he says, if I cast out demons by Beelzebub or Satan, and then he asks him a question, he says, by whom do your sons cast them out? If I cast out demons by Satan, then Jesus says, then who do your sons cast out demons? Now the term sons was a term that meant followers. Or disciple. And so the question that Jesus is asking is like, hey, you guys are saying I cast out demons by the power of Satan. Well, who do your disciples, what power do they cast out demons? Now, that's a brilliant thing that Jesus is doing. He's going all mind ninja on them right there and he's sort of painting them in a corner because here's the thing. We know his, historically that the Pharisees tried to cast out demons in the past, but they didn't have the power to do it. You guys might remember the story that was called the seven sons of Siva. These these seven sons or disciples of the Pharisees came up to this demon-possessed man and they said, hey, um, in, the, in the name of Jesus that Paul preaches, we cast you out. And in a really funny story, the demon looks up at the sons and says, hey, I know who Jesus is and Paul I've actually heard of, but who in the crud are you? And then the demon stripped them naked, <laughs> beat them down and ran them out of the city. And so when Jesus asked the Pharisees the question, you think I cast out demons by the power of Satan? By what power did your disciples cast out demons? Number one, he was comparing his absolute power to their absolute powerlessness. And two, he was revealing the wicked biasness of their hearts. Again, listen, the Pharisees knew the Bible. The Pharisees knew theology. And guys, they would have absolutely known that the only one that has the power to cast out a demon of Satan is God. They would have absolutely known that. But because of their bias of Jesus, because of the hardness of their hearts, they attributed the work that they knew only God could do to the power of Satan. So the last thing Jesus does is he shows them how their accusation was actually blasphemous. And again, this is really when we sort of specifically see uh, what blasphemy of the Spirit looks like. In Matthew 12, 28, Jesus says, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, it's right there that Jesus drops the hammer on them and he tells them definitively, exactly, 
where his power came from. He looks at him and very clearly he says, it was not by the power of Satan that I cast out that demon, but it was by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. It was by the Holy Spirit that that happened. And what that proves is beyond a, a shadow of a doubt that I cast out that demon by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. What that proves is that the kingdom of God has shown up clearly right in front of your face. And so now what he does next is he gives an illustration to absolutely prove that he didn't cast out the demon by the power of Satan, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. In verse 29, he says, he says, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he can plunder his house. And so to prove to the Pharisees that he actually did cast out this demon by the power of the Holy Spirit, he gives an analogy of a thief that wants to go into this really strong man's house and steal his stuff. He said, look, if a thief comes into a, a strong man's house and, and that guy's, you know, he's, he's incredibly strong, what you're gonna have to do is first you're gonna have to tie up that strong man before you can steal anything out of his house. I mean, think about it. If I were to go into Dwayne Johnson, the Rock's house, with the intention of stealing his stuff, what would I have to do first? I would first have to overpower him, right? And then I'd have to tie him up and bind him. And then only then could I steal his stuff. But in all seriousness, what would happen if I went into the Rock's house and tried to overpower him and tie him up? Well, he'd give me the people's eyebrow and he would say, hey, do you smell what the Rock is cooking? And then he would beat me down, overpower me and tie me up. Why? Because the Rock's a little bit stronger than me. Listen carefully. Satan is one of the most powerful beings in the entire universe. Satan's strength makes the rock's strength look like a little boy's strength. And so the point that Jesus is making to the Pharisees is that when Jesus cast out that demon, what he essentially did was walk into Satan's house, overpower him, tie him up, and do whatever in the world he wanted to do. Jesus gives them the illustration to prove that the reason he had the power to cast out Satan's demons was because he is more powerful than Satan. And Jesus says, boys, you know that for a fact. You know that the only one that has the power to cast out Satan's demons is God, but instead of getting on your knees and worshiping me, you consciously and willfully reject me. Listen carefully. Here's where the rubber meets the road. This is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> if the Holy Spirit reveals to a person's heart that Jesus is the Messiah, and yet they willfully and they consciously reject him and refuse to follow him, that is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and when I realized that, when I realized that that's what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit was, that, a, that the Holy Spirit reveals to someone the person of Jesus, but then like the demons and like the Pharisees, they willfully reject it. Then there's a verse in Hebrews that I've never understood in my life, honestly, that all of a sudden makes all the sense in the world. In Hebrews 6, 4, listen carefully. Right of Hebrews says, for it is impossible 
it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift, and who have shared in the Holy Spirit. Notice it doesn't say they received the Holy Spirit. It says they shared in the Holy Spirit. They encountered the Holy Spirit. It says, and, and, and those who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then haven't fallen away. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance since they're crucifying once again the Son of God to his own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now, at first glance, that looks like a verse that's saying you can lose your salvation, but it's not. You, you absolutely cannot lose your salvation. Once you're genuinely saved, once you truly believe, you cannot lose your salvation. But this verse is not talking about losing your salvation because you can't. It's talking about people who were never saved in the first place, but committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. This verse is talking about people like the Pharisees who were enlightened, who tasted of the heavenly gift, who tasted of the goodness of the word of God, who experienced and saw the power that is to come, but they consciously and willfully rejected the Spirit's revelation of Jesus. And so Hebrews tells them when that happens, it is impossible to bring them to repentance. <clears throat> and that's exactly what Jesus says is the consequences of a person who does that. Matthew 12, 31, Jesus says, therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven in this age or in the age to come. First of all, Jesus says that every sin and every blasphemy will be forgiven. And by the way, that's exactly what happened to the Apostle Paul. Before the Spirit revealed Christ to the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus, Paul trashed Jesus. He trashed his disciples. He trashed Christianity. But when the Spirit revealed Jesus to Paul, what did he do? He completely repented and he began to follow Jesus with everything that he had, okay? So <clears throat> what Jesus is saying here is that after the spirit reveals Christ to your heart and then you actively and willfully reject him, that is the one sin. That is the one sin that will never be forgiven and you'll die in your sin. And so if you reject Christ in your unbelief, Jesus' response can be, Father, forgive them because they know not what they do. And if eventually you repent, respond to belief, you'll be forgiven. But if you reject Jesus after the Spirit reveals him to you, and Jesus' response is, Father, don't forgive them because they know exactly what they're doing. <clears throat> You're probably thinking, Matt, who in the world does this? Who, who in the world <clears throat> actually believed Jesus is, is everything he says he was, but then completely reject him? Well, guys, it's more common than you think. I have a friend that was talking to a Jewish woman that she knew, and she opened up the book of Isaiah where it describes the Messiah is being lowly and humble and how he would suffer to pay for our sins and by his stripes, we'd be healed. And my friend asked the lady, who does this sound like to you? 
after she read Isaiah 2. And the, and the lady that was Jewish responded and said, well, that's Jesus. That sounds just like Jesus. I'm pretty convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. She said that, but then watch what she said. She said, but, but I can't follow him because I'm Jewish and it would cost me everything. Okay, guys, you see that? The Spirit revealed the truth of who Jesus was to her, but then her response was an active, conscious, and willful rejection of Jesus. <clears throat> and you may be thinking, well, Matt, that's a Jewish person. Let me give, let me tell you sort of where this sort of hits closer to home and where I've seen, where I've seen it. I can tell you far too many stories of people throughout the years that from all outward appearances seem to be Christians. They'd come to church, they'd experience the power of God, <clears throat> they worshiped, they sang, they lifted their hands, they took notes in church, they served, they went on mission trips. And if you were to ask them if they believed Jesus was who he says he was, they would have told you yes. But then something happened in their life. Something happened in their life, some sin, some hurt, some trial. They got into some relationship that was not honoring to God and they were forced to choose between that thing they wanted that wasn't honoring to God and Jesus. They were forced to choose between the two. And instead of laying down that thing that they wanted that wasn't honoring to God and following Jesus, they consciously and willfully rejected Jesus and walked away. <clears throat> now, here's the scary part. I can actually tell you tons of stories. I can tell you tons of stories of non-believers who hated on Jesus but eventually repented and began to follow him. I can tell you tons of stories about those kind of folks. I can tell you story after story of genuine believers that fell in real serious sin but repented of their sin and began to follow Christ. But of all the people in my ministry that I've seen sort of do the church thing for a while and that tasted of the goodness of the word of God and were enlightened, but then for whatever reason, willfully and consciously rejected Jesus and walked away, the stories of them coming back are rare. And I think that's entirely possible because they committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> so I wanna end today with two very quick points of application and we're done. Here's the first point of application. Number one, if you're here and you've been doing the church thing for a while, but you've never absolutely gone all in with Jesus. If, if you're a person that if you're just completely honest, you're like, you have one foot in the kingdom and you have one foot in the world. Guys, I want you to know that if that's where you're at, you are standing on dangerous ground. Because if there's any part of you that's like, hey, I'm gonna follow Jesus in this area of my life, but then I'm gonna keep on doing whatever I want to in this area of my life. Listen, that is not blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, but that attitude is the seed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and those actions and those attitudes are the fertile ground for it to grow. Because I promise you, there's gonna come a point in time in your life where you're gonna have to choose 
It's gonna happen to all of us. You're gonna have to choose between following Jesus or going after something that you want that's not honoring to him, and you better have that decision made up in your mind before that choice ever comes. There's an old chorus that we used to sing in my church growing up. It says, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Though none go with me, I still will follow. Though none go with me, I still will follow. Though none go with me, I still will follow. No turning back. No turning back. If you know in your heart of hearts that you can't say that today, I want to encourage you when this sermon is over to go walk in a room somewhere, get alone, get on your knees, and you beg God to change your heart. Now, let me say this, just a really quick word of comfort today. That If you're sitting here and you're asked the question like, Matt, have I, have I done this? <laughs> Matt, Matt, have I committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Because I don't want to. I, I want Jesus. I don't always follow him like I should, but I want to follow him like I should. If that's your heart, I want you to know and I want to comfort you that you have not committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because your desire for Jesus is from the Holy Spirit. And that ought to comfort you today. Your desire for Jesus is proof that the Holy Spirit is at work in your life and that you have not rejected him and you will not. But lastly, let me give you this last point of application. And it's this. I want you to think about this. This hit me this last week. This is a heavy verse. It's a heavy verse. And I know a lot of y'all are out there thinking, Matt, thank you so much for this this encouraging sermon today right in the middle of a global pandemic, (laughs) right? But here's the thing. This verse feels heavy because we have a tendency to focus on the really bad news that there's one unforgivable sin, but don't miss this. But when we do that, we lose sight that the beginning of this verse is the greatest news that's ever been told to us in the history of the world. Because watch what Jesus says in Matthew 12, 31. He says, therefore, I tell you, every sin and every blasphemy will be forgiven you. Don't get so focused on the fact that there's this sin that you can commit that will not be forgivable, that you miss out on the greatest news that's ever being told, and that is besides willfully and consciously rejecting Jesus, there is nothing you've ever done, and there's nothing you will ever do that Jesus Christ will not completely and totally and utterly forgive in your life. Absolutely nothing. And that's unbelievable. I think the hymn writer said it best. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Let's pray. Father, if there is any in the sound of my voice that senses and feels you drawing them to you, that they sense a revealing in their heart that you are exactly who you say you are, that you're the son of God and that you died on a cross to pay for their sins. Lord, I pray just in the best way that they know how right now that they would trust 
in you as their Lord and as their Savior and that they would put both feet into the kingdom of God and go all in and follow you. Father, I thank you that even though this is a heavy verse, I thank you that the beginning of it is the greatest news we've ever heard, that every sin and every blasphemy will be forgiven us. Jesus, I thank you for the cross. I thank you for your blood. I thank you that believers are clean today because of what you did for us. And God, it is our joy and it is our privilege now to worship you for who you are and what you've done. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.